So KC, we are continuing on our mental health series. How exciting. How exciting. And you know what? There is a side benefit to being a podcast co-host is that we get to have these conversations that are, you know, actually quite beneficial for our mental health. Yes. The last time we recorded about mental health, we found it to be very relaxing. I have a feeling that we may have the same experience today. So I'm super excited about that. Yeah, we've got two excellent guests joining us today, two licensed professional counselors uh, with us today, Stephanie Perez, um, who is at Southern Connecticut State University here with us, as is Dr. Randolph Brooks. And they both are, they see uh, students at Counseling Services, um, and Dr. Brooks is also the Multicultural Program and Outreach Coordinator, uh, and they're both just um, excellent resources on campus and here to have a conversation with us about mental health and societal stigma. So welcome to both of you. Thank you. Thank, Thank you for having us. Yes. Welcome, welcome, welcome. And Miss Perez got the therapy is cool sweater on. And we <laughs> love that therapy is cool. <laughs> but there is so much societal stigma around therapy. Absolutely. There is. And mm -hmm. I'm sure you see that in your work, especially with marginalized students, trying to get them to come to the office and come reach out for help when it's needed. So let's talk about um, some of the ways in which students may have a barrier when it comes to entering therapy and using the resources of the counseling services office. Yeah, I mean, when we when we think about college campuses in general, maybe just you know, on a macro level across the United States, um, think about the typical college student who um, has a high caseload, um, feels pressure to do well, is coming straight out of high school and has this huge transition, right? Um, and trying to like navigate what that looks like. Um, and then we kind of couple that with long days, maybe they have to work, maybe they don't and how they kind of handle day-to-day -day stressors and make friends, right? Um, maybe some students are moving away from home for the first time, living on, you know, on campus, some are commuting. And then we couple that with their own stuff, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, typically, you know, a diagnosable mental health disorder, typically like 75% of the population of college students, they're gonna be diagnosed with some sort of mental health disorder by the age of 24, right? Um, so that's a statistic from, from the Mayo Clinic that recently came out. So when we think about our typical college age student um, and grad student, that kind of falls within that range, right? Um, and then we think about all these other things that could be, I guess, in the way I guess if you want to say it that way, just like a marginalized student, maybe someone who's a first generation student. Um, we have someone of color, right? A, a different religious background. Um, someone who may come to college already feeling socially anxious. Um, and I think that there are a ton of barriers that prohibit students from reaching out. And I think a lot of the ones and maybe the patterns and trends that I've seen personally here at Southern um, and other, you know, my previous um, place of employment, another university um, has been, oh my gosh, if I tell a counselor that I am feeling depressed or anxious, they're gonna lock me up forever. 
I'm going to go into a straitjacket and I'm going to get locked in a hospital. They're going to push meds on me and I'm going away forever. I don't know, Dr. Brooks, you've, you've had that same kind of, you know, thing told to you from some of your students or just clients in general. Oh, yes. Definitely have heard, <laughs> oh, you're going to try to push meds on me. One thing that we, I've heard also that was kind of striking to me was that means there's something wrong with me. Mm. You know, like it's a character defect that I'm stressed out. And when we think about what it means to start college, whether you are commuting from home or moving away from home, we're talking about significant life transitions, usually for most students happening overnight. Like yesterday, you were a high school student. Today, you're now a college student. Yesterday, you were seen as a child. Today, you're now seen as an adult. Not a transitional period. No, today, tomorrow. That's a big jump for everybody. And to say that you're not a little stressed out, you know, come on, man. You you can be stressed. It's okay. But it's not okay. It's not okay to be stressed out. You're supposed to just take this as a champ and go forth and conquer. And so when you're not conquering, when life is a bit difficult, you can't talk about it because I'm supposed to be succeeding. I'm supposed to be winning at all of this. And in reality, you're going to stumble a little bit. You're, like, you know, you're going to get lost on the first couple of days on campus. You know, you're going to have some conflict with your roommate. You know, you're going to feel uncomfortable in that classroom for that first time. You know, you're going to feel nervous going to office hours or even asking about going to office hours. All that stuff is going to come up. And it's okay if it comes up. That's actually normal. But no one talks about that. And so to feel like you're now the only person experiencing all of this, it's, it's going to feel weird. Right. But you can't talk about it because I'm supposed to be winning. Yeah. That's, and that's just one aspect of college, of the college experience, of the thousands of aspects of college that students experience on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. You're making me really think about back when I was in college 20 years ago. And I do remember feeling like my struggles were my fault. Um, And I remember, I mean, you're making me see that differently. I'm like having compassion for like, wow, that's a very like developmentally, that's a a difficult time in a human being's life. All of those huge life changes, of course, that's really hard and really stressful. And we're surrounded by other people who are pretending at the same time that they're also fine. (laughs) They're not Mm -hmm. stressed or they're taking it you know, day by day they're winning, but really we just have, we're holding on to all of this um, and, and not feeling like it's okay to, to be open about it. And I think that comparison that you mentioned is super um, important to touch on. I, I do think that a lot of the students that, you know, I've come across or, or just even me being a student not that long ago, um, comparing myself to, oh, this person appears to have it all together. Right. Mm, Um, And not understanding that I'm basing that off of what. Right. There's not evidence to back that up. I'm making that assumption based off of they appear to not be 
frantic and disorganized that you know how I appear right or how the students that I see they're like he clearly is getting this work I'm not like what what's going on here um there's something wrong with me and like that whole like narrative in your head of like there's something wrong with me it's a me issue and if we talk a little bit about like how someone may be raised or their family background and their family's view on mental health, um, if we have this kind of mindset of, hey, like like Dr. Brooks had said, like you're supposed to be able to handle this all, like be tough, get it together, pick your big boy pants up and keep it moving, right? And is that really something that's helpful and effective to hear? Or is that actually adding and furthering this negative viewpoint on, hey, I shouldn't be struggling, should I? What am I supposed to do? I think it further perpetuates this confusion of what am I actually feeling and where do I go? Like, how do I make this better? And let's not act like it's only first-gen students who experience this because you definitely have students whose parents and grandparents been to college and even tell them, this is what college is going to be like, and they're still freaking out. Yeah, they so supposed then, to be winning. <laughs> they're supposed to be winning. That's exactly. And so then you then you can add on to that. Well, then you have those students whose parents did not go to college, and they are truly experiencing all of this for the very first time. You know, so everybody, first year students, even and transfer students alike, are going to have that sort of anxiety those first few weeks of this is a brand new situation. I don't know how to navigate all this. You're going to have those feelings that are going to be coming up. And you're right, Stephanie, you are going to see those people faking it. Like, walk oh, yeah. down. I know exactly what I'm doing. Entire time, they're freaking out, but you're not going to see it on their face. But they're going to go back to their room and they're like, yo, that was rough. Mm -hmm. And that's where we come in. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, on top of that, you know, here at here at our university, we're a predominantly white university. And I'm sure other universities listening also are like that. And so when you have students of color entering these spaces for the first time, leaving their communities where they had made went to predominantly people of color schools previous, and now they're in a predominantly white institution with a lot of white faculty, mm -hmm. potentially living on campus um, and not seeing themselves reflected in the student body, the faculty body, having different a range of experiences from the classroom to the residence halls some may not be that positive and they may be struggling with that for the first time not feeling a sense of belonging not feeling a sense of kinship you know not seeing their culture reflected in their studies in their environment and that can be a hard shift for students of color in particular if they have not yet found their tribe but our, you know, here at our university, we have counselors with a cultural lens that can help students navigate and bridge that gap. So can we talk a little bit more about what does that gap look like and bridging that gap? Well, as you were just bringing up the point of not finding your tribe, you know, there is a, I don't want to necessarily call it a special language or a special identity, but there is one in, in which, you know, you're walking down the, you're walking across the bridge, you see somebody, you can give them that. Mm -hmm. And you know what it means. You know, you're sitting in class with somebody and you can give them that look, you're like, 
<laughs> you know what happens. You, you, you know what's going on. And to come out of that sort of environment, to be in a space now in which you can't do that, which means you're now holding that experience to yourself. And in some spaces, you need to express that. Not because it makes you special or anything like that, but it's because something has just happened that is hitting you to your core. And if you don't let that out, you might scream. Especially when we're talking about experiencing microaggressions and in some cases, just outright overt aggression. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you need to just let that out. You need to be able to, you need to know that there is some place that you can go, someone that you can actually talk to and what you can say, what just happened, not good. Or conversely, did you see that? That was hilarious. I cannot believe that happened. That gave me life, you know, whatever the case may be. And those sorts of experiences not only bring you together, but it also gives you that sense of community in, the, in a space in which you may not have community. So as Jamil was talking about just a few moments ago, when you leave your home, when you leave that environment that you called home for X number of years, and you're trying to now establish a new home, you don't establish a new home by yourself. You're developing bonds with people. And of course, bonding with someone does not mean same skin color, but it definitely makes it easier to have shared experience. It definitely makes it easier to have a shared language and a shared understanding. And that's one thing that it's hard to find. It's hard to replicate, especially if you're going far from home. So for example, we're in New Haven, Connecticut. If you were to go from New Haven, Connecticut to Tallahassee, Florida, there are going to be ways of doing things in New Haven, Connecticut that you don't do in Tallahassee, Florida. You know, just because it's the nature of where you are. So to find community there it may be a little more difficult than if you were to just find community someplace in New Haven, Connecticut. Bridging that gap, as Jamil's talking about, isn't necessarily the easiest thing to do, but in some cases, it is the sort of thing that keeps you where you are, keeps you connected. It helps connect you to where you are as well. Yeah, and I think that, you know, I think that the university is going in a positive direction with social justice. And I think hiring certain people in certain positions and um, it's a slow process and it may not be as fast as people are wanting. Um, but I think it is a process. And I think that, you know, Dr. Brooks and I, and as well as the other counseling staff, I may add, are actively promoting and trying to bridge that gap, right? And, and understand what our students' needs are. And I think that the only way our job is, is the only way that our, our job is, is going to continue as a need is based off of what students are saying, right? What do the students need in order for them to feel successful? What do they need from us here on campus and as counselors? And what do our, what are they looking for in order for that to be successful? Um, and I, and I can remember as, you know, as a person of color and as someone who identifies in two minority groups as a woman, um, you know, having a deficit-based approach is something that yeah. I think a lot of students don't agree with. Um, and it's and it's in the language, right? And whether or not there's intention or there from different departments or from society in general to have this approach, um, I do think it, it, it does matter the language, right? Because like Dr. Brooks said, 
experience and lived experience where you come from saying something or reading something is going to appear differently to someone else based off of their own experience and we need to cater to that right so if we look at like a counselor counseling centers like um first intro right like that's the first thing that people read we don't want it to come across like hey we're the counselors we're here to help you you have an issue and we're here to fix it right mm -hmm. for certain cultures oh, I don't see an issue. Yeah, I, I may have something wrong with me. For someone who's still trying to figure out, oh my gosh, are they still going to put me in that straight jacket? Are they going to say that I need meds? That might not be the best approach. So kind of understanding different lenses um, through my own lens, through Dr. Brooks' own lens, right? Through Jamil's lens, through anyone's lens, right? Anyone on campus and how things can be perceived. We have to be open about that. And I think that's a way to bridge gap too, is like language and what is our approach? Um, I would never want anyone to feel like, hey, I have all the answers as your counselor. You have these issues. Let me fix you. Hmm. Right. I, I think that our students should understand and just clients in general and people in general should understand that they have all these innate abilities to cope, to get through whatever they can get through. Right. They have that within themselves. A counselor is not going to say, oh, I have all the answers for you. Here's some meds. Here's some this and that to fix it. I think a lot of our approach here at the Counseling Center is to empower our students. And I think that across the board, regardless of our race, age, anyone here, I think we do have that um, capacity to understand that, that empowering um, is, is vital for these students, right? To make them feel comfortable. The one thing that uh, Stephanie and I, we've talked about, maybe I'd say the past almost year almost, we've talked about what are the students defining as success? Because while Southern may have the goal of graduation, well, some students, their goal is to transfer from Southern, actually. There are some students who are like, well, really, I just wanted to get enough credits to go this place. Or I wanted to get stay close to home initially until I figured out what I wanted to do. And for other students, they're not even thinking about graduation. They're looking past that. They're saying, I want to be a nurse. I want to be a lawyer. I want to do this or I want to do that. And for us, part of that is helping students figure out, well, what is it that you really and truly want? Because we want to help you get that. So can we help you figure out how to become that lawyer? Can we help you figure out how to become that um, airline pilot, whatever the case may be? And for us, I can't tell you what it is you want. So as Stephanie was saying before, it's not the job of the counselor to say, this is what you need and we're going to give it to you. We're going to fix it. It's our job to help you figure out what is it that you're actually looking for and helping and us to help guide you through that process of self-discovery, as well as you realizing that chances are you already have what you need. You just need to figure out what it is but you already have those tools already. Mm -hmm. For example, if it's a student who's saying I'm lacking motivation, well, you have the you have the tools for motivation already. It may be the case of, well, let's put together a schedule, but I'm not going to be the one waking you up in the morning. <laughs> you're going to write off your schedule and you're going to follow that. If you say you want to go to the gym, well, cool. You're going to write down, you're going to write that down and you're going to get yourself to the gym. I may be the one helping you hold yourself. I may be the one helping you hold yourself accountable, 
but I'm not going to be the one holding you accountable. You know, if you don't go to the gym, what am I going to do? (laughs) I'm not going to go, I'm not going to do anything. I don't have any control. I don't have any authority over you, but you are going to recognize the control and authority that you have in your life. And as you recognize the control and authority you have in your life, you're going to take the steps that you feel are necessary for you to achieve your goals. That is a really different way of talking about therapy and and mental health care um, in a in a formal setting. I think than the the dominant paradigm because the idea is like yeah like there's a big power dynamic between whether it's a patient and a doctor in a traditional healthcare setting or mental health like therapist client. It's like you just go in here like you like spill your guts to somebody who has a professional boundary, um, who takes notes maybe, you know, like maybe sits across a desk. Um, So I'm hearing like a real power shift in how you all are describing the relationship that you have with student clients that you see. Um, That is really, I'm just noticing how deep that paradigm is because I like to think that I'm thinking broadly myself about mental health as a teacher, but also as someone who goes to therapy myself. but actually, that stuff's pretty deep. The yeah. idea that that a, a therapist is going to fix you, like I'm going to you because I have a problem. There's something wrong with me, and I need help, which is a hard thing to ask for. Like we know that's hard to ask for. Um, or like you're the expert, um, and I've somehow failed, and thus I'm ending up in your office, or I'm in trouble, so I'm I'm being sent here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's reimagining and rethinking your thoughts around counseling. There's so many preconceived notions or even myths around what counseling is and should be. And I think it can be really comforting to realize that one, stepping into counseling, maybe don't think about it as I'm going here because I'm broken. Um, As a first start. And I think about, you know, we go to the doctors on a regular basis to make sure that we're alive and healthy. We go to the gym to make sure we're active, to make sure that we're feeling good. You go to counseling to make sure that you're mentally really good. And it's almost like having a neutral party as your facilitator or your narrator on your life journey. And they're talking with you and helping you walk that path. So you're not walking it alone, but you are the one walking on that path. I have heard Dr. Brooks say this a thousand times. We could definitely make you a schedule, but I am not coming to wake you up for class. Because you're not. <laughs> <laughs> It is not like they're going to say something magical, five magical words, and all your trauma is healed. It's, you know, you every day waking up and deciding to work on yourself, work on your journey, and you just have a place that you can do that with and at, um, but ultimately it's you that are moving that process forward. You know, and let's be real, sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes it don't work. Yeah. I mean, I've actually, sorry, Dr. Brooks. I've actually had students like come in and say, I, I, I thought you were, we were going to be here to fix me. And I'm like, yeah, sure. I, I don't have a magic wand as much as I care about you sitting across from me. I wish I could like rid everyone of their problems, right? Like anyone would, but Mm -hmm. I think our job is to make sure that that is understood. Right. And, and Jamil, you had brought up a, a, a point, too, about like, you know, you go to the doctors and, and different things like that. Like historically speaking, right, when we're thinking of someone of color going to a doctor, um, you know, there there's distrust. Right. There's a lot of distrust. And, and someone who 
appears to be in a, a hierarchical position that's higher than you telling you what to do, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that that's the important thing that a lot of counselors are learning through a lot of multicultural um, counseling and, and things are shifting, right? Things are definitely shifting from where they were 10 years ago, 20 years ago, where there, is this, and there isn't this power struggle because there's going to be this distrust and how many people are, are we thinking of that like go to the doctor and just say, oh yeah, my doctor told me to take these meds just because I don't know why, just I trust them, right? And and then those meds are not working for them and then all these sorts of things, right? And then we can go down to all these sorts of historical issues with, with you know, people being, uh, you know, uh, tested on and all this sort of distrust that, you know, comes from, you know, lots of communities of color um, and, and all those sorts of things. So I, I personally try to make sure that there is this open kind of dialogue where if my student or my client doesn't feel comfortable about something I said, I want you to be transparent, right? I want that challenge, right? I want you to feel comfortable and challenging in that. I can be wrong, right? Like Dr. was like, what I told you may not work, right? And having that understanding, and I think that having that understanding, having that humility is really important. And a lot of the students that I see of color, and even for me in my own counseling sessions, like I you know, as as someone who grew up in, in a very um, <laughs> a vocal family of a whole bunch of Puerto Ricans who will just say what they want to say without any kind of um, filter, right? I take that and I tell like my therapist, this is what works for me. I need you to be straight up with me. I like transparency, right? And I'm finding that even outside of even university, working with other clients of color, transparency is the biggest thing. And that's what's going to build trust. And, you know, when you talk about sometimes therapy doesn't necessarily work, there are a lot of factors to that. So, for example, it could be you as a client. So, for example, I tell my therapist I want to wake up at five o'clock every morning because I want to go to the gym. And in order for me to wake up at five o'clock every morning, I need to go to sleep at eight o'clock every night but I don't get off work until nine o'clock at night. So let's be real. Yeah. Are my expectations realistic? If I don't set realistic expectations for myself, then I'm not gonna, then therapy is not gonna work. Conversely, if I set expectations that are too quote unquote easy, then I'm not really doing the work of self-improvement. So if I'm saying I've really just, want to get out of bed. Okay. For, for me in my current situation, I get out of bed every day. However, what are you actively dealing with? So there are some people who are going through that clinical depression in which, yeah, getting out of bed every day is going to be a huge task. So what realistic expectations for you right now that's really what i'm trying to go with this so if you're setting unrealistic expectations that's going to be a problem are you setting actual realistic expectations for your current situation that's what we're going to be looking at and are we going to push yourself just just ever so slightly so that we're going to start seeing the progress that you're looking for also what situation are you dealing with? So, for example, um, 
I went through therapy. The first time I went through therapy was right before I was getting married because I was extremely anxious. I was extremely anxious going through that entire process. You know, it was going to be, you know, the process of marriage. Like, yo, this is like, <laughs> what? It's a lot. <laughs> At first, I was like, okay, I'm ready to do this. Then all of a sudden, like maybe three months, I'm like, oh, 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 wow. This is, okay. I'm, I'm, this is actually going to happen. So going through that period of anxiety, yes, go through knowing that this is what I'm actually experiencing and dealing with that, boom, went to therapy for that. So are you actually clear on what you're going to therapy for? Now, let's be honest. That was me understanding exactly what I'm dealing with. For other, for other people, especially young college students, sometimes you have no idea what's going on. And so you, go to, you can actually go to therapy just to figure that out. The difference, of course, is here I am at that time, I was 35 years old. I understand my life at that point. I understand what was happening. So, okay, we can do this. But at 18, in some cases, 17, you're like, what's happening? Yeah. Yeah. What is life? That pressure is. I'm also thinking of, you know. Students may be coming from communities, especially when they didn't have access to counseling services in general. For sure. Um, especially, you know, being a minority, your family culturally may not believe in counseling, may not know much about counseling. So that was never really an option growing up. I have a very similar experience. Um, so coming to a university where counseling is an option and it's free and on campus and it's convenient for you to attend will maybe be the first introduction you have to such a service, to such a practice and a new way of thinking. And you may not know exactly what you're getting yourself into until you do it. I know the first time I joined counseling or attended a session was on our campus. And I had a few sessions before I stopped because as a college student, you may not be in the mental headspace to embark on that kind of journey. You may not feel like you have the time, the emotional capacity, how short a semester is to embark on that journey. And that's okay as well. Like if you get a few sessions in and you're like, hey, I'm going to pause this till the summertime. I'm going to pause this till after graduation. I'm going to pause this for a little while and go over these hurdles first before I tackle these hurdles. Mm -hmm. Because we do have students that are coming in for, with a range of issues. Some students are coming into university with some trauma beforehand. Some students are struggling with anxiety. Some students are struggling with traumatic events that has happened to them. And we see that with our students that we're helping mentor. And I think about being an advocate for students, you know, particularly when we're talking with students that have never had experience with counseling services or know about it and may be anxious. I can remember as an RA, me coaching my students and saying, hey, no, you should go to the counseling services department. Like if it doesn't work, it doesn't work for you, but it may be a good shot to give it a try. And I think when students hear from somebody that they trust, you know, a staff or a faculty member that, you know, our campus has these a range of resources. I would give these range a try and see where that gets you. That may be enough to help a student keep going on their journey. Well, I think, I mean, that trust piece, I, I think is so key. I mean, Stephanie, from when you were talking about that transparency and being able to communicate mm -hmm. back to your therapist, so it's like a two-way relationship. Mm -hmm. um, and then also even just getting in the door or, 
Randolph setting expectations that are a stretch, not too little, not too much. But I think about, I mean, as a trans person, when I, anytime I've looked for a therapist, like it's very, there's a lot of distrust, like, and I worried about like, am I going to find somebody who's going to say that everything I might be dealing with is related to the fact that I'm trans when actually I'm dealing with like all this other stuff. And so finding a therapist that's part of the community, not necessarily trans, but someone who is like part of the LGBT community, someone who I have that kind of wink relationship with, we already have a, a baseline, a huge baseline of understanding so that we can, we've already got that, that trust kind of established um, and can build from there versus I, I would come in so hesitant with someone who I thought didn't understand who I was or the experiences that I'd had before I came into the room that day. So I really think that that trust piece um, or trusting your RA, um, but having a, a sense of trust in the person that you're opening up to, um, it, it, like it's just so important to the process. Yeah, you're you're going into something brand new if this is your first counseling session. And if you had a situation like, thank you for sharing, Jamil, too, like something where counseling wasn't something that was really talked about as an option for you, um, for and it could be for a variety of things. And it could be something that I hear often is, you know, why are you going to go see a stranger? What is a stranger going to do for you mm -hmm. that your family can't help you with, right? Um, what is that person knowing about you that, you know, you can't deal with yourself, right? Oh, you're feeling anxious? Just stop worrying. Oh, you're feeling depressed? What are you, what are you feeling sad about? <laughs> um, yeah. And it's something very simple like that, that I've seen even with working with children, right? Um, I worked a lot with the Latino community and immigrant community as well of people coming over, crossing the border, having tons of trauma, then having this disconnect with their children who eventually come over. Mm. And all of that is, is so impactful because um, when we think about individuals coming over to this country and we talk about our, our undocumented population and everything and their family not really being open to mental health um, and not putting as much weight as they would for their medical health, right? Which is another thing that I usually say to my students, like, you know, about making the connection. But um, I have a lot of students who um, whose parents kind of dis are dismissive in a way. And they're like, well, to the, to the parents who came here and, and struggled and and had lived in poverty or in really dangerous situations and came over, um, they're like, well, what do you have to be sad about? You have you have your games, you have a computer, you have a roof over your head. And and that translates and and what happens is the child grows up in an American individualistic society, not in let's say like a Mexican or Nicaraguan or Guatemalan family where family is everything. There's there's privacy, everything stays in the family. This is the culture, this is how things are. Um, you don't go talk to strangers mm -hmm. about your stuff. You don't burden people. Mm -hmm. And that kind of mentality is brought onto people at such a young age that as they come into our doors, they already have this viewpoint. Like, I know that that's not rational, but how do I unchange this viewpoint that I had about myself and my issues of not burdening other people? How do I get rid of that? Right? Mm -hmm. Where do I start? Right? What do you say to them? What do you say? Oh man, it's, I think awareness is super important. I think a lot of psychoeducation is important. Um, I also like to tell people like, 
you would go to a doctor if you broke your leg, right? You would go to the hospital and say, I broke my leg. I need to get it fixed. But for some reason, we don't put as much weight on, I am sad and not functioning and can't sleep and can't eat, but I'm just going to hold on to that. You would never do that if you had a broken leg, right? So I think that having student understand generational trauma, having student understand um, that they can break that, right? Understanding that they grew up differently than their parents. And then also understanding where their parents' viewpoints come from. And it's not like anyone's right or wrong. It's right. just my parent grew up very differently. I'm growing up very differently. Now at this college age is such a phase of life thing that you are finally on your own, so to speak, and you are trying to figure out who you are. So you questioning these sorts of things is a normal thing. And I think normalizing, validating, you know, having that student kind of just vent and you kind of providing that safe space is important, right? And again, with that transparency, you know, this information doesn't leave this room. Something as simple as HIPAA. Mm -hmm. I make sure I hone in on that with every student, but especially my students of color, especially uh -huh. my students who are from some marginalized community, right? Who are open to me about maybe their documentation status, someone who um, is open to me about their sexuality or gender, where maybe their family, they're not out yet or the different things like that. They're questioning. They need to know that this office is con is completely confidential and we abide by HIPAA. And I make sure that that's known because that's where that transparency and that trust continues to, to be built. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> that's it right there. If we could use that soundbite and put it on a on a board on a highway, we would. <laughs> I feel like so many Latinos that were, that are listening will feel so seen. Will feel so seen. You know, you have to keep this in the family. This doesn't leave this household. You know, right. why are you involving outside people? That is so realistic to yeah. so many students and their experiences back at home and their fears with bringing their stuff to somebody else. That yes. is real. That burden, that word burden. Like I know that I can tell when someone feels like that before they even say it, just like I'm trying to understand it. And the minute that they say burden, I get worried because that can turn into a lot of other things, right? That then you you learn to just internalize. And then we have these moments where I had three panic attacks yesterday. And I'm like, well, why do you think that may have happened? Right? We we are only human. We can mm -hmm. only take on so much. Right. And if we are learning and over time, just keep it in, keep it in, stuff it, stuff it, stuff it. We're going to eventually explode. Right. We only have so much bandwidth. We only have so much capacity to hold on to our stuff um, and keeping family secrets and, um, you know, make sure you don't tell abuelita this or make sure you don't tell mom this because she's going to have a panic attack or, you know, mom can't know that you're depressed. You know, like you, you can't say these sorts of things. And um, I hope that I can show students like personally as a Latina that we need to kind of break this generational trauma of, of keeping things inside. Um, because Latinos are quick to go to the hospital for anything else that happens. Because, because when it comes to like feeling depressed, you're like, oh no, 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 I can't be depressed. I'm not depressed. That doesn't happen, right? I'll deal with it. I'll handle it. Right. And we see the same thing in the black community and they'll, yeah. they'll say, oh, that's, a, that's for white people. 
Boom. Yes, that's I hear that so much. That's some white people stuff. Yes. Yeah. Yes. You know, walking around like so. So you mean to tell me that we've had, you know, we've had entire shows based on dealing with this stuff. We've had entire shows. We've had entire experiences. We've had entire generations in which we've been fighting through this. We see it play out in our families. We see this sort of thing play out when we talk about how grandma and granddad argued back and forth. When we hear these types of narratives about how, well, we got that uncle who's had a breakdown and we, we really don't talk about him. Or, you know, we got that, you got that your nephew who is on the other side of town. He, he, he stays over there. Like. Yep. Yes. So, so, so you mean to tell me that there's a whole other side of the family mm-hmm. that I didn't tell me about mm-hmm. until grandma died? And then they just showed up at the funeral? Like, who does that? <laughs> How does that make sense? That's exactly the sort of thing that happens. And as Stephanie was talking about, those generational curses, those generational issues in which we're holding stuff back, we're hiding stuff, but this is a white people thing. No, yeah. this is a not talking about it thing. This is a hiding it thing. This is a, the kids find out about it when they read the will thing. Yeah. And then all of a sudden there's a whole other set of drama in the family because we're just now finding this stuff out. And then you start putting pieces together, and you're like, so that's why blah, blah, blah happens. Mm-hmm. So that's why mom doesn't like that other lady over there. So mm-hmm. that's why XYZ is going on. Now it starts to make sense. But I've been living with this now for 15 years, not knowing that really what's happened is that there's been this generational trauma that y'all been hiding from me. Now I got to unpack this. And where am I going to unpack this? Because as Stephanie said, I can't pick this outside of the family. So mm. I got to unpack this in the family that wouldn't talk about this in the first place. And mind you, now you're in grown folks' business. Right. <laughs> 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 Whoa, slow down there. <laughs> exactly. So how am I supposed to unpack this? And with who? Who can mm-hmm. I talk to about this? My cousin who's just finding this out too? Yeah. Sitting at the intersection of being both Black and Latino, I have seen both the everything y'all are talking about. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of overlap between the communities. I'm not going to lie. A lot of it's very mm-hmm. similar. We just wear in different colors. <laughs> um, and I'm thinking about generational trauma and how to deal with that. One thing I always say is your parents aren't superheroes. You know, they're not these people that you watch on TV, the sitcoms. That's not realistic. That's not how your parents are. They were people before they had you and they continue to be people. Typically parents do the best in their mind. Um, When they're raising you, they're gonna make mistakes. They're gonna give you a little trauma sometimes. Mm -hmm. And I think once you get to the point where you're able to see your parents as people too, it humanizes them. They're no longer just your mom and dad, but they're their own people with their own lives, goals, and, and trauma that they had before they even brought you into this world. And when you're thinking about multiple generations who often maybe even be experiencing the same trauma just in different periods of time, 
you have to think about the context of when they were living. Like my grandparents weren't going to the doctors because they were going to the doctors in the middle of Jim Crow and doctor's mm. offices were segregated. And my grandmother will openly talk about how she had one experience in the doctor's office and never looked back. And she didn't start going back until she hit her 60s. So when you're thinking about the resources that we have as a younger generation of minorities and the amount of services we have access to that generations previous of us did not have access to, we can finally start trying to break the chains that has been holding our families hostage um, for generations and looking at them differently and maybe even looking at our elders a little differently. Because we have to think about the resources they had at the time, the things they were doing, some of our families, which was the first time them moving to a new state, to a new country, experiencing that for themselves, you know, transitioning from the South to the North, like so many Black families did. Um, you know, my family coming from Puerto Rico to New York to Connecticut, being some of the first Puerto Ricans here in a white neighborhood. What is that like? You know, on my Black side, my family moving from South Carolina to Connecticut, escaping racialized violence. What is that experience like? So when we're thinking about our elders, I try to think about mine in context to what was happening to them in their lives and how much capacity did they have to maybe even have the luxury of working on their mental health. And I think that kind of humanizes our family and their experiences. And to that point, when you're talking about the experiences of our elders now being passed down to us and to this younger generation, those same lessons of who do you trust, who do you talk to, you no, know, that gets passed down too. Mm-hmm. So when you're trying to break some of those chains, some of it is just taking a leap of faith. Some of it is just, you know, well, there's this resource that's available. Let me just try it. And the thing is, as I was saying before, we're, as, and as Jamel was saying too, nobody's perfect. So it may be a case of I'm going to try it. And if it doesn't work, I can't just stop because I know I need this service. So I'll have to try somebody else. Mm-hmm. And as we're going through this process, really trying to think about, well, what did I not like? Because that's information that you can take with to that next person. So I didn't like that this person didn't, it just didn't feel like they understood me. Or I didn't like that this person talked to me with a deficit lens. Hmm. Or I didn't like that this person tried to fix me because all I really wanted was someone that could just listen while I talk. You know, whatever that case may be. But when it comes to really you trying to advocate for yourself in dealing with your mental health, because the person across from you, the professional doesn't know you. you know, real talk, we don't know you. you know, we read the books, but let's be, we have to be honest with you about this mental health training thing, all right? <laughs> we'll read books, but the books give you a foundation. The books aren't, they're, they're factual, but they're not you. You know, so no one I've ever met has met the textbook criteria for anything. You will definitely see, okay, I see how that fits, but you need to have five, yeah, I need to have five symptoms for this disorder, or you need to have six symptoms for six months, or eight symptoms for two years, whatever. I've never seen that. So we don't know, when you mean know enough, but we're still learning, but more importantly, everybody's different. Everyone is a unique individual. So we, as a professional, need to listen to you. Mm. And we need to hear your story. So if you 
feel as though you're not being heard, you need to move on. If you feel as though the person across from you isn't listening to you, you need to move on. And also the professionals, we are supposed to be giving you the grace and giving you the space to speak to us and correct us when we are wrong. We're supposed to be open and, and willing to take your correction because you know, we don't know you. You know, I get people's names wrong sometimes. I, you know, get people confused sometimes. Sometimes I'm just flat out wrong. I ain't perfect, mm-hmm. but I'm not here to be perfect. I'm here to listen. And I'm here for you, bottom line. So if you feel as though that your provider isn't isn't there for you, then they're not the right provider for you. I couldn't agree more. We have to be really careful of putting our own stuff into sessions. And if a student feels like their own counselor stuff is being brought up more than theirs, um, that's that's telling, right? Um, and unfortunately, things like that do happen. And um, I, I think it's important, like for me, for new people coming into counseling, and I always, is this your first time, right? Like that's part of our triage. Like, is this your first time coming to counseling services? Is your first time coming to counseling, period. Well, what are your expectations? Right. Um, And being very clear and concise of what are you thinking this is going to look like? And I can't tell you how many students are like, I think this is going to be like TV and you're going to have a couch and then you're going to have a pen and paper. And then you're going to be like, so tell me how you feel about that. And and it's like, well, no, I'm actually going to tell you how this will work in my office. Right. It's not going to be like that. Right. It's actually going to look like this based off of what you're working on. Right. And I can think that something is something that should be worked on more than something else. But if the student's like, no, I'm not ready for that. I really want to work on this. You're the expert of your life. You know what you need, right? And then kind of like what Dr. Brooks said, it's like reinforcing that, letting them know, right? That it is okay to move on, right? It's okay if you're not being heard or if um, you feel like, you know, you're being pushed in a certain direction that you're not ready for, right? You speak up. I am so curious what led each of you to counseling. Was there like a moment that sort of took you down that path or was there like a person that inspired you or or are you filling shoes that that you wish you being the person that you wish you had um, when you were younger? Um, I think for me, so I, I went to my undergrad, I was a criminal justice major and I minored in sociology. Um, and I think the turning point for me was when I was interning at adult probation in Bridgeport. Um, and I felt like, why are we not asking more? Like we are sitting here saying, don't do drugs. Don't do this. You can't see this person. Stop committing crimes. Bad, bad, bad. And like putting like a slap on the hand and then writing warrants for people. And that's like, but why are people doing this? Like, why are people struggling with committing to these rules? And not being able to stay out of the law, right? And like, and then that was like my society, like my sociological kind of approach, right? Of like cultures and different things. And then being born and raised in Bridgeport and knowing the culture, right? Knowing the urban environment, knowing the levels of poverty, knowing the the rates of crime um, and kind of wanting to dig deeper. Um, and I actually, it's funny, I came to Southern's open house for, for grad and I was gonna look at social work and then I saw the counseling department and the courses just stuck with me. It was more in depth 
um, even though I do like the social justice kind of lens, um, I did want to build my skills clinically. Um, and then kind of recognizing my own generational traumas, right? My own things that are kind of, oh, we don't talk about this person in the family, right? Or, oh, you have depression, you're crazy, right? Like, and then just understanding that, like, no, let me try to change that, right? Let me try to change that for, for maybe myself and understanding myself and then maybe somebody else. My my story wasn't or isn't as direct as Stephanie. Um, I came in the undergrad wanting to be an engineer, and then numbers turned into letters, and I was like, "What <laughs> happens?" And then I went to um, pre law, and then I was all like, "Interesting." No, I don't like that either. But mm -hmm. by this point, I'm like, I don't. Have, I'm running out of options, running out of time. So I did. Um, so I did psych because most of the classes I'd already taken fit in the psych major already. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, okay, fine, I'll just do this so I can graduate. I was kind of that student who, at that point, is needed to get out. Me too. Very <laughs> much so. And then, like, not this me. way, this way. Okay, not that way. Exactly. That was it. And then at that point, I'm like, well, I had this undergrad in psych. What, what can I do with this? Nothing. So get a master's degree in psych. And it wasn't until I got into the master's degree program, I'm like, oh, okay, so this actually is kind of interesting. Hmm. So it wasn't until I was halfway through the master's program, actually, and I got into my first practicum at a college counseling center at Virginia State University, that I said, I actually kind of like this, which is on one hand fortuitous, but on the other hand, as I think about it, you know, kind of kind of scary because, you know, we're in this, we're in a situation now which we have a lot of students who need to know going into undergrad what they want right. to do. Whereas for me, I'm all like, I had no idea what I was really trying to do until I was halfway through the master's degree. Mm -hmm. Like, it don't work like that anymore. That, that's that's a problem. That's a problem for another podcast. So. It is a problem. You know, truly, I see that in class all the time. And that's a source of anxiety for students. Um, because like some people really are very clear about steps and about their path and about what they want to do and then they're like i don't know probably at least half of us who are the more sort of meandering type or who are experiencing different things um and don't necessarily know and really could make decisions but ideally we wouldn't um and there's so many there's a way that we talk about that in terms of deficit too like the undecided student um well, that's definitely a potential for another podcast because yeah i'm, yeah. I'm writing that down right now Casey, <laughs> you know I'm gonna say this. I'm loving the Bridgeport representation. I know you are. Fifty percent Bridgeport here. <laughs> so I'm over here thinking about how students' first interaction with your office and counseling offices in general doesn't necessarily need to be a session, but can be a program. And <laughs> you know, your office puts on so many programs, particularly targeted at multicultural groups. I'm not sure how many other universities take that same approach, but that could be a real good way of students feeling comfortable with knowing who you all are as individuals, what does the department do a little, um, and getting some more tools in their toolbox for their mental health success. We uh, recognize that we don't have enough counselors on staff to work with all the students on campus the way we would want to. And we don't have, and we recognize that students' schedules, it, there's an odd 
dance that has to take place to connect students with clinicians, you know, scheduling and all that. But what we recognize is that through groups and presentations and programming, we can reach more students at um, in a shorter period of time. So definitely um, collaborative work with different um, centers and organizations on campus helps us get our word out. But then when it comes to actually creating our own programming within the counseling center that we can then, for lack of a better phrase, export across campus. So putting together workshops, putting together presentations that we can either put on ourselves or presentations that people can grab from our website and do in their classrooms. Those are definitely ways in which students can actually get the message of the Counseling Center, as well as um, get to know who we are better. Mm -hmm. Some of the workshops that we've been looking at or some workshops we have tried to put together have been workshops around specified topics, whether we're talking about you know, something as simple as Counseling Center 101. So that's that general introduction to the Counseling Center. But then we also have more detail and more in-depth workshops around specified topics like grief or working or dealing with marginalization or dealing with microaggressions or what is it like being a student of color on a predominantly white campus. We, put, we try to put together those sorts of groups just because we know that for some students, do you do feel isolated on a place like this. And this isn't to say anything bad about Southern, but this is just the nature of the college experience. College, in a weird way, is a place that brings students together and it's a magical place. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it can also be a very isolating place. Just as we talked about earlier, this is a place in which you see a lot of people who may try to act the part. They may try to act like they have it all together while inside they're falling apart. This is also a place in which you might find yourself being the only person of color in class or the only person of color within a particular major. And we see that happening across the campus. So it's really, you try to put together programs and organ, not organization, put, try to put together programs and groups, especially designed and geared towards those sorts, towards those students and those experiences. The problem that we may have with that sort of um, programming, again, scheduling and getting the word out, just because, again, this magical place, on one hand, it brings people together, but on the other hand, we're fighting against stigma. Uh -uh. No, I can't let people know that that's me. I can't mm -hmm. let people know that that's my experience. So mm -hmm. trying to navigate and fight through stigma is probably the biggest challenge that we may find on a college campus, especially a campus like Southern. That you know, We haven't brought this point up, but this is probably not the unique thing about Southern, but it is a unique thing about Southern and that we are a predominantly commuter campus. Mm -hmm. So when you have a when you have a residential campus, you know where your students are. Yep. So you can just go to the quad. You can go to where the students are and you can do your programming there. Well, we here at Southern, we have our students are in Bridgeport, they're in Waterbury, they're in Hartford, they're in the middle of New Haven, they're not on campus. They come to campus, go to class and leave. 
So it's hard to actually get the students to stay because they have other obligations. You know, so on one hand, it's a unique opportunity because we have such a wide variety of students. It makes this place blossom and bloom in a way that that diversity, that experience is what makes Southern great. And let's be honest, most of us wouldn't have it any other way, but it is also a unique challenge in how do we connect with these students and keep them here and engaged long enough for this programming to actually set in without being so disruptive to their life. Right. You know, I was so in class a couple of weeks ago, one of my classes, students were free writing just for themselves, not to turn in um, just on, on their mental health, how they're doing, generally speaking. And like that stigma that you're talking about, like the, the barrier um, to go into groups, in addition to like the logistical piece, which sometimes is an excuse, not always, but sometimes like, ah, I'm too busy. Um, but I will say when some people were very freely writing, they're writing so small so they can fill up, you know, they had so much to say and they don't have enough paper to write it on. Very easy to express themselves in writing for themselves. There were a handful of people in the class, most of them men, who looked like, like deer in the headlights, like absolutely frozen, um, couldn't even, you know, in a few minutes, just almost didn't, like, didn't even know what to write. It was just like a real shocked kind of stunned experience. And we do all kinds of creative practices in class. So doing a free write, not out of the ordinary, but the piece about, so that was a real eye opener for me that it's not just um, about opening up to somebody else. It's even just about opening up like to yourself at all um, and in a public space. And, and then I think about how much, especially since the pandemic, when you walk down, I don't know if y'all have seen this, walking down the hallways, just how quiet it is. Like oh, way quieter than it was before. It was already quiet with cell phones, but mm -hmm. in class, it's like, I, it's quieter than like church, you know, it's very quiet. Um, mm -hmm. And I've been, and then people warm up, you know, as we're like engaging in class, but but there's a real, um, I feel like we, like there's a re-socializing or a normalizing of, of interaction with each other that I feel is really like a classroom is a really great place to to do that. Because um, otherwise, like I, I just see people walking around in their own sort of isolated bubbles, which I get, I would have been the same way. I mean, if you're anxious, it's that's easy to stay in your own space. Mm -hmm. I think that we as a collective are seeing such high numbers of students feeling disconnected from others and isolating um, and are feeling high levels of social anxiety where they may have not had that prior to coming to college. And I think there's a few reasons for that. You know, the obvious one would be, um, you know, COVID and, and, and the impact it has had for a lot of us to, um, you know, to switch to remote work and to be by ourselves and quarantining and really kind of just being comfortable for many people with being by ourselves. And um, for a lot of our individuals who are already introverted and really were within themselves, it was like permission that, oh, this is okay, right? Um, and then kind of taking that and continuing that. Um, I think that a lot of, you know, the students that I've seen over the past, since the fall semester and on, 
I would say a good percentage of them are feeling very disconnected um, and don't know how do I make friends, right? That's the question. Like, how do I make friends here, right? How do I become more involved, right? But have this fear of being rejected, right? Like, I don't want to um, put myself out there. I'm worried about that, right? I'm anxious about that. And a lot of individuals who've already had this, you know, in high school and other parts of their life, but a lot of students who are actually experiencing this for the first time and are just so confused by it, right? I don't know if you too, like Dr. Brooks, you're seeing a lot of that too, but I, I'm seeing it, you know, a lot. Yeah, we, we are definitely seeing students who, for that first time of, well, I'll take it a different direction, a slightly different direction, trying to get that back so they remember what's what life was like before covid so they remember um i used to hang out and do these things and i want to get back to that but i know that we're still in the middle of a pandemic even though we've kind of come out of it how safe is it really though Mm -hmm. i'm not seeing it as much as i was seeing it last semester but there was definitely that anxiety around going back to class, especially seeing friends on TikTok and Instagram. Like, I know you were partying last night. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you shared it in your story. And now yeah. you want to be your lab partner today. I don't know if I can trust you like that. You know, so there's definitely those levels of anxiety that, you know, a year or so, well, no, two years ago now, wouldn't have been a thing. And so there is definitely us we're trying to navigate this reopening, if you will, mm-hmm. and trying to get back to pre-COVID life. And for some students, it's we're not going to get back there. And for others, it's we can't get back there soon enough. You hit the nail on the head with that one. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head with that one. I seen you at a party on social media. I don't know if I could be that close to you. <laughs> <laughs> on the head with that one and i think often we talk about students feeling having these feelings these thoughts when staff and faculty and admin are having these same experiences right along with students who were all isolated now we're all trying to rejoin our communities and it's different it's just different i'm not sure if we will ever get back to what we had before but i have a feeling it's going to be something completely different when we do get back together in a more fuller capacity but I also think about the time and history we are in. You know, when we talk about social justice and being a social justice university, counseling plays a huge role in that, right? Like when we're looking at movements on TV and in real life, like the Black Lives Matter movement, when we're looking at the immigration on the border, when we're looking at wars happening on TV, that can bring up a lot of anxiety for students. That can bring up a lot of maybe even anger, frustration, emotions for students that are directly impacted by the implications of these events. Um, And so I know your office definitely helps fill in some of those gaps for students and helps students maybe for the first time in their life navigate, you know, dealing with things in the world that may feel oppressive um, and they may feel wasteless and powerless. Um, You wanna talk a little bit about how does your office navigate that? such a method, um, such a huge task to navigate, but I know y'all down here navigating. (laughs) Go ahead, Stephanie. Oh, I just wanted to quickly say, like, I think 
letting students know and allowing students to have that space to express, right? Um, making the space as comfortable as possible. And even if I can genuinely say, I have no idea what it's like to be a black student on this campus. Um, I recognize that, I respect that, but and I can only imagine what that is for you, right? Um, and how that plays a role. And I think that when we, when, you know, when we see all of these injustices happening and all these things on the news and um, all these different, um, you know, like the different riots and then the different marches and all the different protests and all these things that are happening, I think people tend to forget how they are impacted, right? Like, and not having a space to say, wow, I'm hurt. Wow, I'm scared. Wow, I'm vulnerable, right? And these sorts of communities, right? Where anger is probably the one thing that, um, you know, men of color are taught that is acceptable, anger, right? And, and then physical aggression, right? And then there goes that stereotype of, of black men being aggressive, right? And then this is like all this sort of thing, all these sorts of like ideas that do um, sit in the back of your head, right? As you grow and as you get older and then as you see these injustices, right? But like allowing the space here to kind of dig deep in that, like the root of all of that, like how does that make you feel? And I know I, I made fun of myself and saying, I'm not gonna put you on a couch and say, how do you make me, you know, how does that make you feel? But I wonder how many of those students have never been asked that question. Uh -huh. Like this is just something that you deal with, right? Like that must be, that must suck, like, yeah. But how many people are actually asked like, how, how do you view all the stuff that's going on? Like, how are you coping with all of this? Right. Like what what do you do to kind of make yourself feel, you know, feel good at the end of the day? What are you doing to fill your cup at the end of the day? What are you doing for yourself? Right. And especially when we talk about these other communities where it's to think of yourself is viewed as selfish. Right. Allowing that space for people like, you know, and I'll go back to my Latino community. Right. Where you're thinking of yourself. No, you're selfish. You have to think about everybody else you do for you. You got to do for everybody. And that's another immense amount of pressure. So. I think a lot of students that I've worked with and that I've seen come into the counseling center feel like a sense of relief, like, wow, someone's asking me how I feel about everything that's going on in the news or how I feel about, you know, and validating the fact that I'm not crazy for thinking of myself and my own mental health, right? Like just that straight up validation, I find is what is, is just setting everything apart for a lot of these students who've never had that experience before. I'll just take what Stephanie was saying and take it a step further and also re um, emphasizing the importance of our students self care. Because when we're talking about being an institution in a movement, it's easy to think about the work. And it's easy to think about the work as it being an external work. But the work is just as internal as it is external. So how are you taking care of yourself? You know, we often talk, I often talk about how you can't take care of anyone else if you're not taking care of yourself. You can't do the work of social justice if you aren't actively monitoring yourself. If you're too exhausted to do the work of social justice, what good mm -hmm. is this? If you're too exhausted to get your own work done, what good is it of you being a student? This isn't to say you're not doing social justice work at all, just do your schoolwork. But it's just to say we need to definitely find a balance. 
And it is also to say recognizing what are your priorities. So just as Stephanie was saying, you can't do for yourself, you have to do for everybody else. No, sometimes you really do need to prioritize yourself. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you do need to prioritize your self-care. Just like sometimes you do need to prioritize that math work. Granted, I know you don't want to do it, <laughs> but it is important because your goal here, again, is to graduate and get to that next step. So sometimes that needs to be where the priority is, while at the same time recognizing that your mission is bigger than what we're doing right now. Because that mission of social justice extends past the walls of Southern. That mission of social justice, when you internalize it, that becomes a part of your life. So it becomes those little things that you do. It becomes those little acts when you are at your place of work and you are you know, having that conversation with somebody and you are saying, hey, you know, well, that's a microaggression. We need to you know, address that. Or when you are know, encountering injustice anywhere. Now, the point being, you need to take care of yourself so that you can do this other work. You need to get this one thing done so you can do all this other stuff. And that's a big part of social justice. And that's something that we do try to emphasize in the Counseling Center because it's about your success and the success moving forward. Well, speaking of self-care, you both are joining us. Jamil and I are comfortably at home. <laughs> um, you two are still at work. You're still in the office. You're, it's at the end of a day, um, and you spent this hour with us. We will, we will chat with you all night. We're not going to do that. And we would love to hear, to close out the episode, Like, what are some of the ways that you all take care of yourselves, um, especially given that you are your listeners all day? You know, How do you not sort of take in everybody's stuff um and what do you do to you know fill your own cup rejuvenate um and refresh yourself well i do go to weekly therapy and i do take and i do go to sleep early well not as early as i would like <laughs> but, <laughs> you know do weekly therapy i do go to sleep early i try to work out in the mornings but i also take at least one day a week at least one day usually it's on saturday in which mm-hmm. I'm not doing it. I'm not, I'm not doing work emails. I'm not doing programming stuff. This is a day in which work is not a priority. I'm not thinking about it. I'm not doing it. When I was a graduate assistant, I was not grading papers. When I was writing my dissertation, I was not writing. Okay. <laughs> I, I needed to take a day because if I don't, I was going to lose my mind. And that's something that I tried to stick with moving forward. Yeah, um, like Dr. Brooks said, I mean, boundaries, that's Mm. just so important. And I didn't, you know, as starting off as a clinician, I didn't understand that, right? I think I had my own imposter syndrome where I needed to really push myself and prove to whoever I thought I was proving to that I was a good clinician and I would take extra shifts. And, you know, this is prior to coming to Southern, but I would take extra shifts and I would take, yeah, I'll take on that client. Yeah, I'll do this. And being bilingual, like, yeah, I'll, I'll translate this for you. Yeah. I won't, I'll cut my lunch break in half. Right. And then over time kind of realizing, oh my gosh, like I can't even sit here and focus on this person who needs me the most. So um, yeah, boundaries, super important. Um, I love the feature that iPhone has now where it kind of lets people know that your notifications are silenced um, so that if they do need you, they can kind of push to notify you. God forbid if there's like an emergency. So 
Um, I really try my best to put on um, my Do Not Disturb at a certain time at night. Um, I try to maintain as best as I can eating healthy, um, making sure I'm eating throughout the day um, and exercising. You know, that's, you know, how the dopamine and all that stuff, you know, I, I it's something that I'm working on, but it's something that I know that after I do it, I feel great. Um, and it's that one hour of time where I'm not thinking of anything but myself. And I think that that's important when I set my boundaries to do that unapologetically. Um, I think a lot of people feel like setting boundaries and putting your phone on do not disturb or not responding to a text message right away from someone or saying, nope, I'm, I'm not going to go to that event. It's Sunday. Sundays are my day. My family already knows it has to take a lot for me to get out of my bed on a Sunday um, and do pretty much anything like that's that's just my day. Um, so it got to a point where I told myself, if I do this, it has to be done unapologetically, no guilt, right? No mm -hmm. guilt about putting myself first. Um, no guilt about anyone saying, oh, wow, you're going to stay in bed all day Sunday. Yeah. Right. That's me. That's what I need. Right. In order to fill my cup. So. I'm all of these things that you're sharing. It's great advice for truly anyone at any stage. I've just been newly learning about the the importance of getting enough sleep um and also that time that's scheduled for yourself to treat that like it's time to schedule with somebody else that you're not going to because i used to just give that away like oh i said i was gonna um work out today but somebody needs something from me so i'll just you know put anything about me out of the way and you're right like it's not sustainable and it means that you can't show up for other people in the same way right. um so all of this um is applicable to students too, um, especially in the pandemic and online school. That does not mean you have to do it 24 hours a day or you're responsible for it 24 hours a day. Right. I think students need to hear that more. Mm -hmm. You hear that you're a full-time student and this is all I'm supposed to do. And you hear their parents saying, your only job is to do school. You know, this is what you need to do. And that's that added pressure, right? So feeling guilty of, I see so many students who are like, Oh my God, like the start of the semester. Well, I'm just anxious because there's not much to do yet. Or, oh, these classes are easier than I thought. And I feel like I'm not doing anything, right? It's because you're so used to being at a certain level that you're not like staying mindful. And I think mindfulness too is another self-care thing too. It's like staying in yeah. the moment, staying present, staying with yourself, not overthinking, not thinking of the future, not thinking of the past and really being mindful of where you are right now in this moment, right? I'm over here just jotting down notes. <laughs> I'm down here like, all right, morning workout. We got to find a day free. We're going to be staying present. I'm just jotting down notes. I hope the folks that are listening are jotting down some notes. These are some good ideas. Yeah. I'll let y'all know how this work out. <laughs> Thank you both so uh, much for spending this time with us and for being open about, you know, your selves and, and also like your, you know, what it's like to engage with you as a as a therapist as a clinician and my hope is that folks who are listening who have maybe like we've opened a little door you know a possibility for seeking therapy for considering taking care of yourself in a, in a way that maybe you haven't before all right so if you enjoyed this conversation Jamil, where can folks find us folks can find us on instagram facebook and twitter folks can also find us on our scsu website and apple podcasts and spotify so if you haven't already like, subscribe, 
and lots of, if you're new to the podcast, welcome, and lots of past content for you um, if you haven't seen it already, and more on mental health coming up. So thank you to Dr. Bricks and Stephanie. We really appreciate having this, this time with you today.